me right um, this, though the fig tree should not blossom. You see, and we're, we're going to study from the book of Habakkuk. I don't know how many of you have even read from the book of Habakkuk in the last six months or so, but it is a small book, one of the minor prophets. And uh, for those of you that struggle finding it, um, the easiest way is to go to the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and work your way back. And you'll see the minor prophets listed there, and eventually you make your way to Habakkuk, or uh, as Alistair Begg likes to say, Habakkuk. But uh, I'm going to use Habakkuk if that's okay. So why are we studying this? And sometimes that's hard, and I know something that Tyler's uh, struggled with is what to preach on when you have one week to preach or two weeks to preach, and you're not preaching through a book. Well, we're actually going to preach through this whole book in two weeks. So we're going to go through pretty quickly. But the reason why is there's a passage at the end of the book that has always struck me as being one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And that is Habakkuk chapter 3 and verses 17 through 19. So I'm going to ask if you would turn there in your Bibles. We're not going to spend our time this morning here. Uh, we're going to spend next week here in this passage, but I wanted to read this to you. Uh, then we will pray, and then we're going to kind of do an overview of the book together. So let's read Habakkuk 3, beginning in verse 17. It says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Father, in your sovereignty in assembling each of us here. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us today. That you would speak to us through your holy word. pray, Father, that uh, neither Tyler nor myself would get in the way. Uh, that, that, Father, uh, people would hear from you. As again, we study your word. We do love you and we thank you. We thank you for first loving us. We thank you for the precious gift of our salvation. And we thank you, Father, for the precious gift of Jesus Christ. And it is in his wonderful name, his matchless name, in which we pray. Amen. So to give you an overview of Habakkuk. It is one of the 12 minor prophets if you're to look in the Old Testament. The last 17 books of the Old Testament are the prophets. You have the first five which are considered to be the major prophets and then the next 12 are the minor prophets. And that term minor is a term that was originally um, coined by Augustine. And the reason why they're minor prophets is not because of their significance. Uh, but they're called minor prophets from the standpoint of the size of them 
here. See that here? It's a small book. And also the, the narrow focus of them. So this is one of the minor prophets. As you can see there, it's three chapters, a total of 56 verses. So there's not a lot within this book. Interestingly, not on there is what you find out different about Habakkuk than other minor prophets or prophecies, uh, prophets, or is the fact that he is not warning the people, but it is just a conversation between him and God. There are no other people involved, and it's very interesting discussion, and one that I think we can very much learn from. The setting uh, is Judah, during an evil time, how do we know that? We see in verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Written by Habakkuk, the prophet. And the only way we know about Habakkuk is really in this book. His name is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, but in chapter 1, verse 1, and also in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 1 says an oracle or a burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And chapter 3, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. So these are the two places that we see Habakkuk's name mentioned. In the Hebrew, uh, his name means to embrace. And some, therefore, especially in, in rabbinical traditions, say that Habakkuk was the son of the Shuamite woman. How do we know that? I want you well, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read from 2 Kings chapter 4. I know I have the one verse listed there, and you may remember Pastor Rubel preached on this, or did Bible study on this not too long ago about the, the Shunammite woman and how she was favorable. Uh, to Elisha, she and her husband built a room up above so that they would have a place to stay whenever they traveled through. And Elisha wanted to, to return the favor and do something for her, but he didn't know what to do. And it says in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 14, And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi, which was his assistant, answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. So Elijah said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she was very old, and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elijah had said to her. So, according to rabbinical tradition, they see this word of embrace. She was to have a child that she was uh, to embrace, and therefore many believe that that is Habakkuk, as Habakkuk's name means to embrace. Timeline, if you're trying to figure out when this was written, here's a nice little chart. Uh, we know the exact day, time, year, no, but uh, most people... I would say that it was written sometime between 16 or 612 BC and 586 BC. 
And the reason why is, if you look, uh, we're going to see here in a little bit that he speaks of the Chaldeans. God is going to speak of the Chaldeans being raised up, and the Chaldeans being a wicked people. And the Chaldeans really came into prominence or being known in 612 B.C. 612 B.C. as they destroyed um, Nineveh. And now, uh, we also know that in 586 B.C., they destroyed Jerusalem, so it's sometime in between these two dates that Habakkuk was written. Because ultimately we're going to see that Habakkuk is about prophecy of Judah being destroyed by the Chaldeans. Now the question is, did that happen? Was the prophecy true? We'll see that it was in 2 Kings chapter chapter 24. Verse 10, it says, At that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all of the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. And he carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths, and then read there, none remained except the poorest people of the land. So that's the background. That is what we're seeing. That is when it was written. That was who wrote it. That is the scene. If we were to look at the outline, it's a pretty easy outline. Uh, you have a complaint, some would call it a question, I would call it a complaint by Habakkuk. And then we see God's response. We see another complaint, another response, and a final prayer. A final prayer or a song of praise. Now what's interesting is in between these, these, these complaint response, complaint response, there are two singular verses that are very important that we're going to look at, and I say that they're kind of somewhat Habakkuk kind of stepping back and, and, and getting his footing on solid ground and in many ways recalibrating his mind. But we will see that as we go through the book together. So like visuals, here is a summary of it. So you see the first question, God's answers. Second question, God's answer. And then chapter 3, which we will cover next week, is uh, this prayer of praise or song of praise. So let's look at the beginning of the book. First, Habakkuk's first complaint. And on the screen is, is uh, verses, I believe, 2 through 4, not 1 through 3. But um, I'm going to read verse 1 as well. Verse 1 says, 
the oracle, or as the King James puts it, I think a better term, the burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So here we see his complaint. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Very much like the Psalms of, of, of lament that we would see, like in Psalm 6 or Psalm 10. Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so that the law is paralyzed. You can say the law is numb. It's ineffective. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So this is the land in which Habakkuk is living in, God's chosen people, and we see the wickedness of it. We see the terms of iniquity and violence, destruction and strife and tension. And we see also in verse 4, the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So we see Habakkuk crying out to God. So we know it's not just once, but he says, How long shall I cry for help? He's crying out to God, asking God, What are you going to do about this? The place is rampant with wickedness and people are not being judged for their wickedness. How long are you going to allow this to continue to go on? And what struck me as I was reading that is in many ways, while we may not say it out loud often, we probably are thinking the same about where we live country, the world in which we live in. Maybe not wishing for God's judgment, but wondering, God, when are you going to judge? This world in which we live in, this country in which we live in. This is society as of today. We see God's creation under attack. I was just reading just within this past week. And this is just one of many guides. A guide to gender identity. And you see the little comic strip or the little pop-up thing? It says, hi, my pronouns are... All of a sudden we've taken God-created male and female. And society has said, Nope, God, you're wrong. Your creation is not correct. What about the value or the sanctity of life? Just read this also. With everything going on with Roe versus Wade, and we pray that it is overturned. That since Roe versus Wade occurred, there's been 63 million abortions. Jesus say God, why haven't you judged this country? You could even say, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? The biblical concept of marriage under attack. 
nearly 1 million. This is due to the, the, the 2019 census, and I think it's probably increased dramatically, just knowing the states are allowing this to occur, but a million same-sex households, of which of half of those uh, were married couples. You know, we could easily just turn on the news and see the, the constant increase of senseless violence that goes on. So Habakkuk says, O Lord, how long shall I cry out for your help and you will not hear me? Live in a wicked place and the wickedness is not being judged. Well, God gives Habakkuk an answer, but it's not the answer that Habakkuk wanted. Have you ever prayed for anything or something and God answers it? Yeah, that wasn't But we see that here. And we see that uh, in chapter 1, in verses uh, 6 through verse 11. And we're not going to read it all. But we see that God says to Habakkuk, I am raising up a people known as the Chaldeans. And interestingly, if you were to study this, you would see that they uh, were a nomadic group from the southern portion of Babylon, a tribe. They kind of were raised up. They created a whole lot of wickedness, and then they disappeared. They were killed off. But God tells Habakkuk that judgment is coming, and it's coming through the Chaldeans. And this is how they're described. Bitter and hasty nation, dreaded and fearsome, more fierce than evening wolves, fly like an eagle, swift to devour, gather captives like sand, laugh at every fortress. They are guilty men. And God says to Habakkuk, you know, those people, the people that you already know about because they have destroyed uh, the Israelites, the northern tribe. You know, those ones, well, they're going to be an instrument of my judgment. You want a judgment, judgment's coming, and it's coming through the Chaldeans. And again, we know that it's not the answer that Habakkuk was expecting. And what occurs next is one of those little areas that I said that are kind of a recalibration point. Habakkuk hears the answer. He's kind of reeling from it. So what does he do? In verse 12, he ultimately recites who God is. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, a rock, have established them for reproof. So we see that Habakkuk is, again, reeling from this news that God has told him. He steps back and says, wait a second. Let me remind myself of who God is. And he says, God, I know that you're eternal. I know that you're self-existent. The term they use there is Yahweh, the same term that, that Moses, when he asked God, who should I say, send me? And he says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This is the same term. So he recognizes that God is self-existent, that he's holy, 
that He's sovereign over all things. He says there, you have ordained them as judgment. You have established them for reproof. But he also recognizes that God is dependable. He refers to Him as a rock. So we see that the first thing Habakkuk does is he steps back. As one commentary said it, he puts his feet on solid earth. We also see that Habakkuk recognizes that God is faithful. In the midst of this verse, you see I have highlighted or bolded that Habakkuk says, we shall not die. Where does that come from? What he's calling the covenant that God made between himself and his people. Genesis 17:7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations from an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So we recognize that all of a sudden, back he focuses on the And he steps back, rehearses in his mind who God is, and now he's ready to ask his second complaint or question. <coughs> MacArthur gave a good quote on this passage, good for all of us here. When you run into a stone wall and you can't figure out what is going on, just stop and say, God is eternal. Was here before this problem, he's going to be here when it is over. He is self-existent. There is no problem that is at all too big for him. Not only that, he is almighty. Nothing happens but what he allows to happen. And he is faithful. Always. Amen. So it would have been good probably if Habakkuk ended there. But he goes on to a second complaint. And really it is somewhat of a twofold complaint. The first piece being, why use the more wicked Chaldeans to judge the more righteous in Judah? And we see this in the end of verse 13. It says, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. I know about these people. They're very wicked people. The most wicked people. Why are you using them as an instrument for your judgment? Why can't you do something else? Why can't you yourself judge us in some way, whether it's through a famine or whatever it may be? Why use these wicked And I thought interesting, I read this, I don't recall who said it, but it applies, I think, to us. It says, how could God use an unholy nation to judge his nation? How could a holy God use an unholy instrument 
And he answers it. He says, I don't know how he does, but he does it all the time. You know, every time he uses me or you, he's using Is that true? No, it's not he's using us as instruments to, to for judgment. But actually the opposite. He uses us as unholy instruments to be those proclaiming the gospel, the, the instrument, the tool that he uses to change hearts. The second part of his complaint is well, when are you going to punish these people? You've now said you're punishing us for our wickedness, but when are the Chaldeans going to be stopped because they're going on and on and on? He says he brings them all up with a hook, and this is from verses 14 and 15 and then verse 17. He brings them all up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he is, he rejoices and is glad. Verse 17. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Kind of goes back to that first cry, that first lament. How long, O Lord? How long are you allow these wicked people to be doing what they're doing? And we see that this description that he gives, he brings them all, all of them up with a hook, he drags them with his net, gathers them in his dragnet, is not just figuratively, but actually it is literally. That is the wickedness of this people. You see in Amos chapter 4, and I know it's at the bottom, I need to reference Amos 4 2. Lord, God has sworn by his holiness that behold the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks. Even the last of you with fish hooks. In reading some commentaries and reading some historian accounts, apparently that was common. They would actually hook people tie ropes to them, put hooks through their either lips or their nose, tie ropes, and they would carry them off. Habakkuk is saying, one, find these people. These are the most wicked of the wicked. Why use them as your instrument for justice? And secondly, when are they going to be punished? Again, after this, Habakkuk takes another step back. He puts his feet on solid ground. You see this in 2 1. It says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. And look out to see what he will say to me. And what I will answer concerning my complaint. Or the NIV says that I think better. What answer I am to give to this complaint. Spurgeon said of this. He said the attitude of the Lord's servant is expressed in one word. Watch. 
when you are puzzled, when you are troubled, when you do not know what to do, then may God help you to say, I will stand upon my watch I will set and set me upon the tower and I will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer in my hand. So we see the first charge, complaint, Habakkuk. We see God's response, not what Habakkuk wants. See him settling in, standing on firm ground. Next, the second charge from Habakkuk. Again, stepping back, getting on settled, settled ground. And then we see God's response. And his response is five times God explains judgment that he will do to the Chaldeans. Yes, they're awful people, they're wicked people. And yes, I will judge them in my time. And he uses this phrase five times, woe to him. Woe to him. And as we read that, I will honestly say, I have no idea what it means, woe to him. But I did look it up, and here's two things that did mean something to him. One says, doomed is him who blah, blah, blah. Makes sense to me. That's not a good word, is it? The second one was, what sorrow awaits him? So this is what God tells them. Yes, they're evil people, and I will punish them. And we see this five times. We see the punished for their extortion. It's hard to put these into categories. But you see, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own and loads himself with pledges, pledges which is loans in which he's taking people's property. They're taking people's property. Uh, also, we see in verse 8, because you have plundered many nations. So the first woe or the first what sorrow awaits him is because they have extorted people. Second is economic gain at others' expense. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. Ultimately, it's saying, woe to him who actually takes people's properties to build their own house and make it even better. The third one is tyrants building a legacy through bloodshed. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Fourth, debauchery or shameful treatment. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. God is saying, doomed are they. What sorrow they would have And then last, woe to him who worship the false gods who says the living God's first response to Habakkuk's second complaint is, I will judge the Chaldeans. I am a just God. We also see the second response is that he is faithful. He is a faithful God. And you say, well, where do we see this? As I mentioned, 
God's response begins in chapter 2, verse 2, and it goes to chapter 2, verse 20. Early on in that section, early on in that section in verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, that means the happiness. It's not upright within him, but the righteous, the believing remnant of Judah, shall live by his faith. Dr. John Wilbert said this. He said this statement is not only the theme of Habakkuk, but the of the entire scriptures. I'm sure many of you will remember reading in the New Testament. The just, the righteous shall live by faith. I'm curious if you recognize that it was from this little book, from the book of Habakkuk, which Paul was quoting from. Interestingly, it was this passage, or Paul's quoting of this passage, that resulted in Martin Luther's salvation. Reading from his journals, it said this, it says, Before those words broke upon my mind, that being the righteous shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith. He says, I hated God and was angry with him, because not content with frightening us sinners by the law and by the miseries of life, he still further increased our torture by the gospel. But when, by the Spirit of God, I understood these words, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again, like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. And henceforward, I saw the beloved and holy scriptures with other eyes. The words that I had previously detested, I began from that hour to value and to love as the sweetest and most consoling words in the Bible. The very truth, this text was to me the true gate of paradise. John Piper summarizes it well. He says, The just shall live by faith implies two things. One, all those who are righteous are also ones who have faith in God. Having a right standing before man in God always includes faith in God. And second, faith is what saves from God's wrath. The just by faith means just people are people of faith. And secondly, faith is what secures their life and keeps them safe for eternity. I've listed there that Paul quotes it three times. We're just going to look at two of them real quick. Running out of time here. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, 17, verse I'm sure you're familiar with. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written in this little minor prophet of Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And then we see again in Galatians 3.11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law of the righteous. 
close with a quote from Warren Wiersbe, uh, somebody that, if I remember right, was a friend of your father, I believe. Uh, I think had a church maybe outside of Cincinnati in Kentucky, I believe. I think it was Wiersbe. Your dad would have so many funny sayings and stories. Uh, I believe it was him uh, speaking of the that he said that apparently they had a big, he had a big bookstore. And uh, I guess it's Tom telling it, so I don't think so. Uh, and Tom went down to go and was looking at books and bookstores. You happen to give discounts to poor miserable creatures. And here's being a joke and said, Yes, I <laughs> Of which we know that is not Tom. Tom was one of the great preachers. Uh, but the relationship really existed there. Let's close with this quote from Says Habakkuk needed a right perspective on what God was doing in his world. Although it is good to pray about these things, it is also good to be still and know that he is God. The Lord emphasized two truths about himself. One, God is just. The five woes made it clear that God knew the sins of his people and would deal with them in due time. He hates pride, greed, selfishness, murder, drunkenness, lust, and idolatry. That's summing up those woes. And secondly, God is faithful. Three key verses reveal this trait. You can trust him because his character never changes. His word never fails. And we'll go back and look at 2.4. It may seem that, may not seem that way now, but one day his glory will be revealed. And all the earth. Meanwhile, God is on his throne and has everything under control. According to 20, which says, But the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silenced before him. So instead of looking around and asking God a lot of questions, look up and lay a hold. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Father, for our time together to study your word. We thank you, Father, for what is called a minor prophet. But, Father, may we say its contents in no way are minor. We thank you, Father, that something written 26, 2700 years ago is still relevant today. We're thankful, Father, that your word is 
a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, may we take what we heard, what we read. May we be mindful of it. And Father, we ask your blessings now upon the rest of our time together. Be with us for our time this morning as we worship you in song and prayer and offering and reading and studying the proclaiming of your home. We do love you. We thank you, Father, again for first loving us. And we pray these things in Jesus. And before you get up,